How's everybody doing? How's everybody? You guys all right? Your Southeastern students, any new students? All right, bless you guys. All right, we're in the book of James. Before we get into chapter 3 again, um, we're going to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to engage with us to make the word alive. How many like not to waste your time? <laughs> have, you, have you ever read this scripture and, or any book and you go, what did I just read? Like, okay, let's not do that tonight. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to help us and to implant the word into our hearts. It's the word implanted that grows and produces fruit in our lives for his glory. That's what we're after. Are you, are you in agreement with me? Is that what you're after here? Okay, all right, let's do that. Let's reach out now to the Lord. Let's ask him. Father, we ask you now in the name of Jesus that you would take this word that you have breathed and so graciously blessed us with this treasure that we hold in our hands. We're so blessed. Father, so many of your people throughout the history of the church and even in the world right now, there's so many of your people, they don't have your word. And we are richly blessed to have it in front of us. I pray that you would make the most of this time, Lord. I pray that you would speak to our hearts, that you would implant your word inside of us and help us to uh, receive it with a good heart that it would produce fruit in us 30, 60, 100-fold for your glory. Let Jesus be honored in us. Let Jesus be glorified in this place this night, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. James chapter 3. I'm going to read verse 13 through 18, which is the same verses that we read last week or last time. But there's a reason, okay? It's not going to be a repeat. There, there's so much. Like, for me, this is like a feast. Um, there, there's so much truth and life in the Word of God, and there's so, um, just, just, just so much richness there. So let's, let's start at verse 13. I'll read um, verses 13 through 18, then I want to go back through this a little bit. So James says, who among you is wise? Say wise. Okay, this is one of the themes of this passage here. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior, his deeds in the gentleness, or I think humility is a better translation. NIV translates it that way. Uh, many translations translate that word as humility. That's a, that's a key point in this passage as well. That in the humility of wisdom, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, that word means solical, just from the soul of man, demonic. James has no problem using strong language. You're going to see it all the way through uh, this book. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. Verse 17, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering and without hypocrisy. We're going to look at those that list um, a little bit later. Um, it's an important uh, list to look at, characteristics of what godly wisdom looks like in the community of believers. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make, what? 
peace. Okay, peace is a big word in this section. And so James is talking about the wisdom of God, obviously, in this section. Last time we were together, we took the same passage and we talked, we took a big overview of the subject of wisdom in the scripture and how necessary it is that we have God's wisdom. So I gave this definition of wisdom. I want to give it again. I think it's accurate. You can make your own if you like. Um, But this is what I see as being what wisdom means. It's having God's perspective. It's seeing what he sees and understanding his heart and purposes for people and situations. Okay? It's seeing as God sees. This is so huge in every area of our life. We want to see the perspective. How many have been in a situation and you acted in, and responded in a certain way and then you realize later, that wasn't what God wanted me to do. <laughs> Anybody brave enough to say, yeah, I've done that? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a perspective in every situation that God's you know, God's perspective, and there's a human perspective, right? So he gives the contrast of the two kinds of wisdom. One that comes from where? Comes from above, and there's one that's from below. The one from below is earthly. It's just natural wisdom. It's from the soul of men. It's just good ideas from men, and it's also demonic. How many know that this world is influenced, the mores of this world, the thinking of this world, cultural values are influenced by demons, okay? To the degree that the gospel is not dominant in a culture, demonic thinking becomes dominant in that culture. And so the things that people accept without questioning so often, it's not God's perspective, but it's actually a demonic perspective that keeps people from the Lord. So we, how many want the wisdom from above? Okay, So what is James talking about in this passage specifically? He's not talking so much just generally about wisdom. But he's talking about wisdom in a particular context. The context that he's talking about wisdom in is in the community of believers. So so here's, here's where we're going with this. He's saying, look, let's be wise. Let's have God's perspective. Let's think and see in the community of believers the way God thinks and sees about how we should interact with one another. That's really what this passage is about. He's talking about getting God's perspective on how we relate to one another in the community, how we act, how we live, our perceptions, but seeing from above, not seeing from down below. It makes a huge difference. There is a huge difference. So verse 13, who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior, his deeds in the humility of wisdom. And so um, verse 13, humility is there. God's wisdom, let me make just a couple of statements. God's wisdom is always rooted in humility in relationships. It's always rooted in humility. What is the wisdom of this world when relationships, as far as the earthly or the soulical perspective? Is humility highly prized and exalted in our culture? No, it's not. It's whoever's going to get up on somebody else and dominate somebody else and intimidate somebody else. That's worldly and soulical. God's wisdom in relationship is always rooted in humility. That is a huge perspective. If so, so I do premarital counseling, and I also do marital counseling and have over a period of years. And I can tell you that this is at the root of almost every problem is that there's self-assertion. There's so it's all about me. And so the conversation goes something like this. The problem is 
He does this. He does that. He does this. He doesn't do this. He doesn't do that. He doesn't do this. And then she says, and I'm not saying I'm perfect. And I say in my head sometimes, I'm glad you said that. So now we were wondering if you really were perfect or not. But here's the deal. It's their problem. My problem is this big, but their problem is like this big. And the reason that I'm not happy is because knucklehead here is doing all of these things. The perspective of looking at ourselves from a humble um, perspective is, is so often missing in relationships. How many know that strife in the church community tears it apart? Brandon read the scriptures about peace in the community. So this is a huge deal to Paul. This is Ephesians 4. In verse 3, he says, in Be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In the bond of peace. Because Christ has created peace on the cross, what did he do to the enmity between Jew and Gentile? He destroyed it. He crucified it. And he made of both groups that were so hostile. If you think there's hostility in racial issues in our culture, the hostility between Jews and Gentiles was much greater than that. So the hostility that Jesus overcame on the cross, he literally broke the power of the enmity on the cross between Jews and Gentiles and made of the both that hated each other. What do the Jews call Gentiles mostly? Dogs. Dogs. They didn't like each other. When the disciples came up in John chapter 4 and Jesus is sitting there talking to a Samaritan woman, she wasn't even a full-blown Gentile. She was a half-breed. Samaritans were half-breeds. And they were despised by the Jews. And so it says the disciples were amazed. (laughs) What are you doing talking to her? Jesus disarmed, broke the enmity between the two groups and created one new man where there's harmony. So the Holy Spirit, here's what we're going to come down to here. This is what I say. The atmosphere, it's all about the atmosphere. I try to, um, in premarital counseling, this is always the first session that we do. It's all about the atmosphere. You're going to choose. If you're in a marriage or you're going to go into a marriage, and what I try to do is to catch them before they get in patterns in the marriage. I want to catch them before that. If you're going into a marriage, you're going to decide what kind of air you breathe in that relationship. You're going to decide what that atmosphere is like. You're going to decide what kind of words you speak. You're going to decide what kind of facial gestures you give to each other. You're going to decide all kinds of things, but you're going to decide what the atmosphere in that marriage is going to be. And it will determine your destiny in that relationship, the atmosphere that you set. It's the same with your children in your home. The atmosphere that you set in your home either allows the Holy Spirit to come in and have his way and move. See, this is the thing. I mean, you guys who've heard me before, you've heard me say this. It's worth repeating a lot. So I felt hugely incompetent as a father, not really having an example of a Christian father at all myself. And so when I got married and we started having children, I was scared spitless. God, what do I do? How am I going to raise these kids to love you? I don't even know what I'm doing. And the one thing that the Lord showed me over a long, you know, a longer period of time as I kept crying out to him was this. 
If you create an atmosphere in your home that the Holy Spirit is pleased to dwell in, then I will do in your children what you can never do yourself. If you create an atmosphere in your home that the Holy Spirit is pleased to dwell in, then I will do in your children. See, here's the deal, and here's what you find out with any person. Only the Holy Spirit can reach down in and make Jesus real inside of that little heart. You can bring them to Bible study. You can bring them to Sunday school, and they can just be an educated sinner in the Bible. How many know that the statistics are very lousy as far as children when they get to high school age or college age leaving the faith. It's huge. Why is that? Because they never really encountered the Lord and he never really gripped their heart. You see, the thing about parenting from a Christian perspective is we're trying to work ourselves out of a job to where they're not just trying to conform to the outward rules, but there's an inward person inside of them that directs their behavior so you're not always having to watch them and so when it's a beautiful thing to see when your children come to you crying and confessing something that you didn't know happened because they're convicted by the holy spirit who lives with inside of them see that that's that's the deal but here's 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 what matters this is what matters it matters in a home it matters in a marriage and it matters hugely in the church of jesus christ it matters what kind of atmosphere we set and so James is going, look, if you're wise, if you see from God's perspective, you have to create an atmosphere where the Holy Spirit wants to dwell there, where you're not quenching him, where you're not grieving him, where he's free to do whatever he wants to. And that atmosphere is a five-letter word, P-E-A-C-E. It's peace. It's unity. There's a spirit of oneness of the love of Christ to one towards the other that allows the Holy Spirit to move and do what he wants to do. The opposite of that, what is, the, what is the contrast that he makes in this passage? The opposite of that kind of peace, of that kind of atmosphere, is bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. Wherever that is, there is, did, did you notice that the language um, in verse 16? Where there is jealousy, what is jealousy? I want what you have. The Pharisees, the, the, the New Testament says that the scribes and Pharisees turned Jesus over to be crucified out of what? Of jealousy, out of envy. They hated, they hated that the crowds loved and followed Jesus and not them. They hated it. It's all self centered and rooted in selfishness but where there is jealousy and selfish ambition listen where where those things exist there is disorder and every evil thing come on back up do you see what kind of strong language that is so is there a culture in the church where there's selfish ambition I want to be recognized I want to be famous I want to be the the dude on the stage I want to be is there that Wherever that exists, then that's a gateway sin for every evil thing to come in. There's certain sins that open up the door wide open for all kinds of other sins. In, in the church community and in relationships where there's selfish ambition, that's a gateway, what I would call a gateway sin. That allows for the spirit of the enemy to come in and to do all kinds of havoc. It's a gateway sin. There's personal gateway sins, too, that allow the spirit of 
the enemy to come in and ravage our lives. One of those would be 1 Timothy 6, verse 10, for the love of money is the what? The root of all kinds of evil. So why, why is that? Let's just look at those two sins for just a minute. The love of money, why is that a root sin, do you think, that allows the enemy to come in? What, what's at the base of love of money? What is it? Idolatry? That's exactly what it is. Yeah. The Bible says in at least two places in the New Testament, Colossians 3, 5, that greed is idolatry. Ephesians 5, 5, if you want the references, also says the same thing. There's, so where there's idolatry, this is what Paul said, when there's covetousness, how many know what the word covetous means? You want it, but the Greek word is really cool. Pleonexia means it's just two words put together, meaning have more. Have more. Have more. That's covetousness. Wherever that is, God says that's idolatry. That's a worshiping of an idol, and that allows the enemy to come in. So where there's selfish ambition, why is that a gateway sin that allows all kinds of mischief to come in to the church and into our community. What's at the root of selfish ambition? What's the, what's the root sin? Another five-letter word starts with a P. It's pride, right? Do you agree that? The root sin of selfish ambition would be pride? Oh, you guys are really quiet tonight. Okay, so what is James going after? He's saying, and can I ask you, um, do you think that there's anything of selfish ambition in the church model that we built in American church? Is it okay to talk about this stuff? Is, is there anything that we have built into the foundation of church culture in the West that promotes and breeds selfish ambition? There is. Yeah. The entertainment model of ministry, which is foreign to the New Testament, where we have a movie star, where we have a rock star worship leader, where we have bodyguards and an entourage of people following and occult followings of people that have certain giftings, it breeds the spirit of selfish ambition. And so the goal, I can tell you this from being at two different Bible colleges, the unspoken culture there is to be successful, what you want to do is emulate brother so-and-so who speaks at the seminar. And if you can work your way up and you get to know the right people. I had people all the time at Bible college saying, come on, you, me, this is my, my uncle's friend or whatever. Come over and meet this guy. And I'm like, no, I want to vomit. I don't care. I don't want that. The, the only attraction in the church is supposed to be Jesus. He's supposed to be the one that has the cult following, but it's not cult. <laughs> but we worship gifts, and the church has always had a problem with this. This, you know, and I've said this before, but, but there's a culture that we build that's different than the New Testament model, which is the weaker members are more necessary. The weaker members are the more necessary. 
I know we don't believe that. <laughs> but the Bible says it's true. Apostles. Oh, yeah. Apostles. Now there we're going to have, we're going to have a conference with apostles. Oh, brother, I'm an apostle. I know in a lot of these places you can throw a rock into a crowd and hit an apostle. There's so many. And, and prophet and chief prophet and the titles keep getting escalated. It's insanity. Here's Paul's description of his own ministry. We have become like the dregs of society and the dregs of the earth. We are slaves of all. We are despised, outcast. This is the model <laughs> of apostleship in the New Testament. We're the first ones to be persecuted. Read Paul's list of ministry qualifications on his resume. Beaten times without number. Shipwrecked. Left for dead. Had to escape over the wall of the city at night in a basket because they were coming to kill him. He was constantly being hunted. That keeps the power of the gift very safe. Even so, here's God's heart for him. Because of the exceeding greatness of the revelations that God gave me, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me so that I might not exalt myself. Oh, come and get a selfie with me. Look, look at my selfie. I've got a selfie with me. Like the culture is, 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 is not the New Testament culture. He wants to be the greatest among you. Who's the chief apostle? Who's the chief apostle? The one who is your bond slave of everyone. Jesus said when he gathered his apostles together in Matthew chapter 10 in the closed door meeting with just his apostles, he said, look, here's what it's going to be like for you. They're going to hate you. Your own family's going to hate you. Wherever you go, they're going to try to kill you. They're going to reject you. You're going to be persecuted from town to town. Or you're going to have book deals worth $10 million and have your face everywhere. We're going to promote you. What's wrong with this picture? Is it okay to say this? What's wrong with the picture? See, here's what happens in a culture, in every culture, and, and this, is, um, this is our danger in every culture. There's things that we accept because it's all we've ever seen or known, and we never question the basics of it. Like, is this really right? Is this what promotes the glory of Jesus Christ in the best way? Is this true to the tenor of Scripture that the greatest among you will be the servant of all? And the word servant is doulos, which means bond slave. You were stamped with a tattoo. Somebody owned you. So do we need this kind of teaching and this wisdom of God's perspective in the church? I believe that we do. I think we need to challenge it. 
Okay, I'm not talking about being rebellious. I'm not talking about character assassination. I'm not talking about Facebook, you know, things and trying to slam somebody in the car. I'm just saying in our own personal life, like what are we captivated with? What are we going after in the church culture? What is actually attracting us? Is it Jesus or is it celebrities in his name? What, what is it? The Western culture, we have adapted so much the model of the, the, the CEO or the movie star or the rock star. And I just want to be one to question it because I want to ask you, like, where do you find that in here? Where, where is it? <laughs> it's, it's not there. It's the opposite spirit of that. See, humility is always at the root and the heart of what wisdom is in relationships and in church community. And if, and if we can, so, so this is part of the strength of, of having plurality of, of leadership because that way everybody gets to promote somebody else and not themselves. And so we want to activate every person sitting in the pew because we know that Paul said in a body, it's the parts that are not noticed. It's the parts that seem to be the least important that are actually the most important. Paul said this. How many, how many believe Paul understood the church and had a good grasp of the gospel? Pretty good. Okay. How many want to put your resume up against Paul's? Okay. He was caught up in heaven. He received the gospel from the mouth of the Lord Jesus himself. And so I think Paul knew what he was talking about. This is how the body works. So he said we have more care for those parts that seem to be the less necessary. Is, is that how it's played out in the church communities? I just, I just want to know. Is that how it's played out? Is, do we give more abundant honor to the parts that are unseemly, like he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 12? Is that, is that how we do church? Is it? Because that's God's wisdom, but it's not man's. And, and I, I just want to, I, I, again, there, there's a, this is not about attacking anybody or anything. I just want us to question the paradigm and the Kool-Aid that we drink every week and go, what's in this? Is this really the New Testament model? Here's, we all go, well, yeah, we want to have a New Testament church. And we're like, okay, well, let's look at it then. <laughs> we want to have a place where Jesus has first place. Well, let's look at it then. Let's see if we're actually going according to the model of the New Testament and find out. Pride is the gateway sin. It's a gateway sin in church. If you've been on Facebook at all or seen advertising for ministries, you know that there's something that we should probably be questioning and looking at. Selfish ambition. <laughs> so much, so much. So much of ministry. Who you know who you've talked to, who you've ministered with. Like, can I just say from my perspective, it's all nauseating. It's nauseating. This is about Jesus. This is about the Lord. His, his view of how the body is put together is not the way that man views. He doesn't see the same way. 
my trouble yet. We must at any cost promote a culture of true humility or we are inviting the enemy into the house. Okay? Can, can I say that one more time? Can, can, can you have ears to hear this? We must at any cost promote a culture of true humility or we are inviting the enemy into the house. So look back at bitter jealousy, selfish ambition. Can I, can I show you how many, how many believe that Moses was a pretty good leader? Thank you. My wife raised her hand. Praise the Lord. Turn to um, Numbers chapter 12. I just want to look at Moses for just a minute as, as a, an example of leadership. Numbers chapter 12, verse 1. <coughs> you're, you're familiar with the story. Then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. For he had married a Cushite woman. What's a, what's a Cushite woman? What was the issue here? She was black. She was a different race. Miriam and Aaron didn't like it. What are you doing marrying that? Like that's below your social strata. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us as well? And listen to this phrase at the end of verse 2. And the Lord heard it. The Lord heard it. Now verse, notice verse 3. Now the man Moses was very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. <laughs> How many would love to have that on your tombstone? <laughs> That's an incredible statement. Well, what does that look like? Because that's the wisdom from above. It's rooted in humility. What does that look like? Let's read the rest of the story here. Suddenly, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron and to Miriam, you three come out to the tent of meeting. So the three of them came out. And then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the doorway of the tent. And he called Aaron and Miriam. And when they had both come forward, he said, hear now my words. If there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak to him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. Even uh, with him I speak mouth to mouth, even openly and not in dark sayings. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant, against Moses? So the anger of the Lord burned against them, and he departed. But when the cloud had withdrawn over the tent, Behold, Miriam was leprous as white as snow, his sister. And Aaron turned towards Miriam. Behold, she was leprous. Then Aaron said to Moses, O my Lord, I beg you, do not account this sin to us in which we have acted foolishly and in which we have sinned. Oh, do not let her be like one dead whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes from his mother's womb. And Moses cried out to the Lord saying, O God, heal her, I pray. But the Lord said to Moses, if her father had but spit in her face, she would not bear her shame. For, would she not bear her shame for seven days? Let her be shut up for seven days outside the camp. And then afterwards she may be received again. I want you to notice how Moses acted. He was being falsely accused, wrongly accused by his brother and sister. What did he say about that? Nothing. 
He didn't try to defend himself. He said nothing. He wasn't promoting himself. When he got the job, was he out there vying for the job, saying, God, you know what, I'm the best guy out here? No, he said he gave the Lord all excuses why he couldn't do it. When he was being falsely accused, he trusted the Lord to defend him. You see this pattern in Moses over and over again, that when Korah and the others began to accuse him, what did Moses do in those moments? He's like, guys, listen, the Lord appeared to me in a burning bush. What are you doing questioning my authority? You don't know when you see the chief apostle? Now, what did he do? Time and time again, he fell on his face before the Lord. He's like, God, do, what, do whatever you want. Like, I didn't apply for the job. If you don't want me in it, take me out. <laughs> and you see his spirit in his heart when Miriam, who falsely accused him, she seemed to be the ringleader because she's the one that got the leprosy. He cries out to God. God, heal her! See, he's... He, he doesn't have vengeance in his heart towards those that falsely accuse him. You see, you see what this hum, humility looks like? You feel it in the spirit of man? How many have ever been in a situation where you've been falsely accused and it just kept going around? Like, I've been in a situation like that with a, with a church deal um, years ago, and it just wouldn't stop. It just keeps going around and around and all of these things coming out, and so much of it was just completely false and bogus. <laughs> but it was so good for me because... The thing that rose up in me stronger than anything else was, bless God, I'm going to defend myself. I want to get on the phone and call people and say, hey, that's not true. And the Lord showed me, oh, you see that? This is about you, huh? I don't know about you, but there's been several times where the Lord's like, I don't really care about your reputation. (laughs) It's not about you. What I'm after is that issue in your heart that makes you have to defend yourself because you're right. Instead of just saying, God, whatever. Like, I belong to you. I don't have to defend myself. You defend me if you want to. I know there's lots of times where he doesn't want to. He's okay with not defending us every single time. But in Moses' case, he was super jealous for Moses. Can you see that when he jumped in there? Everybody come out to the tent right now. Dude, that's like the dad making everybody stand up at the table. Like, we're going to have a family meeting right now. Weren't you afraid to talk to my servant Moses like that? What were you thinking? He's, he's, he's really jealous and protective over this guy who was humble. <laughs> I want to take a humble posture. I've just found this by experience. If, if we want to defend ourselves, then the Lord's like, go, see, see how you can do. Go ahead. See how you can do. Go, go ahead. See how it works out for you. <laughs> Not good. He wants a heart. He didn't desire vengeance. You see the kind of leadership? You see why the Lord could trust him in leadership. That's huge. Now, he, he messed up at the end. It wasn't because of pride. It was because the people wore him out, and he got angry, and he struck the rock more than he should have. He didn't represent the Lord rightly. But, but there, there's, there's some powerful um, principles in there as far as um, Moses' leadership and what true leaders are supposed to be. And so I say that this whole issue in this chapter is about the community 
in, in the atmosphere that we set. So um, this, the jealousy, the selfish ambition is at the heart of what invites strife into the community. Wherever there's jealousy, selfish ambition exists, there is disorder in every evil thing. N now notice verse 17. Let's, let's just look at this list for just a minute, if you will. Because this is characteristics of what godly wisdom that's rooted in humility look like in a community. How many would love to be part of a community where God comes in and he can do whatever he wants whenever he wants to? That's the opposite of having a place that's comfortable and never an awkward moment. Okay. How many are okay with being awkward sometimes? You okay with that? How many are okay with being uncomfortable sometimes and it being awkward and, and, and you're not feeling every time that when you leave you're like, oh my gosh, I just feel so good. Maybe it's not always like that. Maybe sometimes it's like a wrestling and God dealing with issues deep down inside of us. How many want the Lord to deal with those issues that are deep down inside of us that he sees and we don't see? Like sometimes that takes a wrestling and it takes something that tweaks how many knows the Lord sets you up to tweak things in your heart that he's trying to get after? And we want to shut that down. No, Lord, we come to church because we want to feel good. This is about us feeling good. We want to worship you, but we want to leave out here feeling good with a smile. And, and, and I want to suggest to you that's not the Lord's agenda for his church. Now, there's definitely those times and those moments. But there's also, don't forget, the Ananias and Sapphira days. That was a rough day at the church. That was a hard day at the church. Great fear fell upon them all. No one dared join themselves to them. That was a hard day at the church. How many are okay with that? For real. Like our paradigm of what church should look like. There, there's churches um, that hire people and their whole job is to make sure that there's no awkward moments in the church service. That's their job. Because the experience of people coming, we want them to be happy, happy, and everything feel good for the whole service, and that's what it's all about because we want them to come back. But I, I say, if what we're getting them with is what we're going to have to keep them with, then there's the whole, that, that's just the entertainment model, which is just opposite of what the New Testament model is. It's true. We should question the paradigm and go after what the New Testament teaches if we want God. If we want God, then we want an atmosphere that he's pleased to dwell in. Would, would you agree with that? Do, do, do you agree that there is a certain atmospheres that God works and moves in powerfully and then there's atmospheres where the Holy Spirit is quenched and grieved? Would, do you agree with that? Okay, so if we look, you think we're in safe ground, if we look at the New Testament to find out the kinds of atmospheres that the Holy Spirit moves in, that God's moving in, that he's pleased to dwell in, that that would be a good thing to go after those kinds of atmospheres that we create in the church? Are, are y'all with me? Okay, so that's what James is doing here. He's going, you guys... With you have selfish ambition and you have 
the vying over who is the chief apostle and who is the this and that. Pro- okay, that, that's an atmosphere where the Holy Spirit is, is, is quenched and grieved because that's not what he's after. He's not after the exaltation of man or man's gift. He's after the exaltation of Jesus Christ. Okay, everybody with me. Okay, so peace. Here's here's what he's going after. So the wisdom from above. This is verse seventeen. Here's here's seven characteristics, seven or eight, depending on how you divide them. Let's just look at this for a minute. Okay, are you okay with just looking closely at this for just a minute? Okay, let's look at these characteristics and let's just weigh our own hearts and how we connect with them. The wisdom from above. So this is good. This is God's perspective, right? Would you agree with me, everybody? This is God's perspective of of what it's supposed to look like in community. The wisdom from above is, first of all, what's the first word? Pure. So what do you think that that has to do with? What what do you think purity means when he says that the wisdom from above is first pure? Somebody describe what you think that means in community. What is that? Okay. So I'm, I'm saying that there's a heart attitude, okay? I connect this with what Paul said in maybe 2 Corinthians chapter 11, that he said, I'm, I'm concerned over you that the serpent will try to deceive you from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. You get clogged up with all kinds of other things. So I think there's a single vision there of saying, Jesus, we just want you to be glorified. We just want you to have your way. We just want you to be the central attraction. We just want you to be magnified. There's a, there's a pure heart behind that. This is about you. It's not about me. It's about you. Um, peaceable means peace-loving. What kind of peace is he talking about here? Most of the time in, a, in, in, in church we talk about peace in the sense of feeling the peace of God where we feel rest and we don't have that agitation but the peace that he's talking about here is horizontal between people there's peace there i love you we're different you're a vegetarian i'm a meat eater whatever it is you know we have our differences here we have different political outlooks but it's okay because there's something that supersedes all of our differences that binds us and melds us together it's the spirit of jesus christ inside of us and we're brothers and sisters there's a peace but there's peace but then there's peace loving where you want there to be harmony between and so you work at it there's peace loving all right gentle this is number three gentle well one scholar said that this means not pushing your own agenda because you're satisfied with less than what you deserve thumbs up on facebook reasonable that means you listen and you try to see things from the other person's perspective full of mercy and good fruits this is what i say in in the body of christ the lord wants us to be an extension of the redeemer's heart like wherever we see brokenness wherever we see um need we want to be an extension of the Redeemer's heart. Whatever a situation is broken, we want to be an extension of the Redeemer's heart and let his redemption and his wholeness flow through us to other people. Unwavering is the next word. It means loyal. It means loyal, having a loyal heart. And then without hypocrisy, <laughs> I think it means that you hate faking it. I don't want to fake it. How many are with me that 
I, I don't want to fake it. I don't want to fake it anymore. Like I don't, I don't want to do it. I just want to. I want to be real. I want. I want Jesus. And and I can be the first to confess. Like I'm thankful for all that the Lord's doing, but like I'm hungry for more. And I know He has more in His heart for us to do. Um, so verse 18, and the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So righteous fruit in a community grows when peacemakers create an atmosphere of unity by sowing seeds of peace. Okay, I'm going to read that one more time. Righteous fruit in a community grows when peacemakers create an atmosphere of unity by sowing seeds of peace. So there's an active pursuing of peace in relationships, right? Pursue, here's Hebrews 12, 14. Pursue what? Come on. Pursue peace and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. So we're supposed to pursue peace. Can I just ask you, like, how do you do that? How do you pursue peace in a horizontal relationship? Because most of what happens in relationship is that we pursue peace by avoidance, not dealing with the issue, don't get too close, don't let there be those kinds of things that have to be worked through. Because how many know that peacemaking is hard work? It's not sweeping under, there's, there's no carpet in the kingdom of God. God sweeps nothing under the carpet. I'm not talking about sacrificing truth for the sake of having peace. It's not real peace, it's fake peace. But sometimes there requires confrontation to have real peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. Why? Why are they blessed? For they shall be called the what? The children of God. Why are peacemakers called the children of God? Because when they're peacemakers, it shows they have the DNA of their father. Because that's what God does. He restores and brings together relationships that were broken. You're a peacemaker, you have the DNA of the Father. So let me just real quick, we're getting close to the end here. You can look at these, I'm going to give you these references, and then you can look at them later, but you're familiar with them. Matthew 5, 23 and 24 says, If you have something against your brother, and you're going to offer a gift at the altar, so what are you doing? You're worshiping. I'm up here, and the music's going, and I'm worshiping, and I'm saying, Lord, I love you, and he brings to mind... You, you did something against your brother. He said, get up from the altar and go to him right now and make it right. Matthew chapter 18 says, if your brother has sinned against you, then you sit and wait for him to come to you. Is that what it says? It says, you what? You go. So if you're the one who's offended, what do you do? You go. And if you're the one who's been offended, what do you do? You go. Either way, you go. So peacemakers take the initiative to deal with the broken relationship. You have to take the initiative. And then this is Matthew chapter 7. You guys are familiar with verses 1 through 5, so I'm just going to leave it at that. But this is the second thing you have to do to be a peacemaker. You have to deal with the log in your own eye. You have to deal with the log in your own eye. You have to go before the Lord and go, Lord, why is this conflict here? I had this happen. I was at Southeastern. One of my roommates, he was a good friend of mine, and we couldn't, we just had, there was just a lot of strife in our relationship and just tension, and I didn't know what it was. And I just went out. I said, Lord, I'm just going to pray until you show me what the problem is. So I went out of my car. I went up by Lake Parker, 
And I parked there, and I prayed for an hour and a half. I was praying in the Spirit, and I was just praying waiting on the Lord. And the Holy Spirit came on me. The Spirit of prophecy came on me, and he said, The problem is you. He started talking to me. The problem is you. Because of your own pride and your own opinionated uh, ideas, you're the one who's causing the tension. And you need to repent. How many knows that was not my own mind that said that to me? So I went back and I, I did. Here I'm thinking, dude, what's wrong with you walking around with a speck in your eye like that? And I've got this beam in my own eye. Always when there's issues to be resolved, we have to do the log thing. <laughs> we have to go before the Lord and say, Lord, is there a log in my eye? Like what's in my eye? Am I like worse than what I'm thinking that they are? How many know that this is wisdom rooted in humility? How many know that most people don't do the log thing? We just automatically assume, dude, you know you offended me like that. And the Lord's saying, wait. Now, take just a minute and ask me and I'll show you <laughs> what the deal is. Do the log thing. The third thing is, this is so big. You have to own your own sin. You have to own it. In our culture, we have this culture that is so amazing where we can make apologies without saying anything and not humbling ourselves. So you have athletes, because uh, the coach or the owner of the team puts them up to it because they've been a total fool. Uh, I would just like to say to everybody that um, might have been uh, offended by anything that I've said or done, uh, that uh, I'm sorry that you're, you've been offended. What did they just say? I didn't do anything wrong. You're the idiot that misunderstood me and got offended, but I'm sorry if you did. That's no confession. Politicians, the same thing. I apologize for any of my constituents that might have taken offense at what I never intended to mean or say or do or what. It's no confession. Say your wife or husband. I'm sorry that you uh, felt bad and took that wrong of what I said, but I didn't mean anything. Here's what confession means. Wisdom is rooted in humility in relationship. Say these three words with me. I was wrong. I was wrong. Please forgive me. I was wrong. I was a fool. I was an idiot. I should never have said that. I was wrong. <laughs> Those three words. You never hear that from athletes or politicians. There's always something that's padded with alibis. Well, I'm sorry that I did that, but it's because you were such a jerk to me that I did that. If you wouldn't have done such and such, then I wouldn't have that. Okay, who's actually getting the blame here? Okay, come on. Wisdom is rooted in humility. I was wrong. Please forgive me. And then I think... We need to acknowledge the hurt. Saying, when I said that or when I did that, I'm so sorry. I was so insensitive. That must have really hurt you. And I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And the Lord says, <laughs> it was really worse than that, but that's a good start. 
And what happens when we humble ourselves? What begins to flow in the relationship? Peace, grace, humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. That he may exalt you. If we would humble ourselves, he gives grace to the humble. You want grace in relationships? You want peace in relationships? We humble ourselves. Say it with me. I was wrong. Come on. There's some of us, we have never said that in our life. <laughs> you might need to practice in the mirror. Right? Like, I was wrong. Please forgive me. I was wrong. There's no excuse. There's no alibis. It's not because I didn't get my coffee. It's that I was wrong. I sinned. I grieved the Holy Spirit. I was wrong. This goes a long way if we could have this in our culture. But I, I know it's not going to be out there, but it should be in the church culture, and it needs to be in our homes. And parents, we need to tell our children, please forgive me. I was wrong so that they learn how to say those three words themselves. Instead of saying, if you wouldn't have done that, then I wouldn't have had to. No, I was wrong. I didn't represent the Spirit of Christ rightly. Wisdom is rooted in humility. James is going after you want to have a community where there's a crop of righteousness that's being produced everywhere? Yeah, we want that. Here's how you do it. You've got to be peacemakers who are sowing the seeds of peace wherever you go, causing relationships. I'm not talking about fake peace. You, you, you know what I'm saying? How, ma how many have ever been working at a job and there's constant tension between you and somebody else, but you always smile there and say, oh, hi, how are you? And like you're both feeling like, oh, I can't wait to get away from them. Okay, the Lord doesn't want that. He sees that. He wants there to be peace in his body. That's an atmosphere. Listen, the, look, we can talk and preach about revival till the cows come home. And it won't happen if there's not an atmosphere where God can come and dwell. This is practical stuff where James is going, look, if you want to see from God's perspective, He's looking for there to be true peace and relationships to be strong and established and honest. That takes hard work. How many have ever heard marriage is hard work? How many have ever heard that? Okay. This is what they're talking about. For me, after 36 years of marriage, marriage mostly has is, is been wonderful, beautiful, glorious, and way beyond my expectations. Okay? I just want to go on the record as saying that because there's so many naysayers out there. But that doesn't mean that there's not hard work, and it doesn't mean that there's not flesh to be overcome and to be crucified every day. It is, but they can coexist. They can coexist. So what are we going to have? Like, here, here's, here's our culture. We're, we're a mile wide and an inch deep. So, yeah, we, 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 we're great at pretending. Facebook is like, this is the real me. You, you, you know the, the trend that's happening right now with plastic surgeons where people are trying to get themselves actually cut and pasted into the appearance of what they have on social media. Like, it's crazy. This uh, couple that's now Ken and Barbie, like, they've had all these surgeries, and, like, their faces are like plastic now. It's crazy. 
what's that guitar there? You guys know, you probably know better than me. But I'm, I look at that and I'm like, because our culture is image. And what God says is, I don't believe your image. I don't care about your image. I want there to be the substance of Jesus Christ and of reality. And I want there to be a demonstration in the lives of people and community that Jesus is alive and he's real and it makes a difference and he can transform entire communities and cultures and supersede the differences and supersede all of the disharmony that exists and not be papered over like, we just love each other so much. And the Lord's like, really? I don't think so. He wants to go after the heart. This is God's wisdom. How many want to be a peacemaker? It's hard work. It's risky. It's risky to go and say, please forgive me. I was wrong. It's risky to go and say, I really need to talk to you. Because when you said that, that really hurt my heart. Can you please help me understand what you meant when you said it? That's hard work. It's a lot easier just to pretend like, oh, hi, how are you? And the Lord, he's not buying it. He's going, I want a place where I can dwell. I want a place where I can live in your midst and everything is clear and honest and the life of Jesus is flowing like blood between the members. That's what I want. And it takes work. And it takes peace to be established. How many want that? How many want that? How many want it? I mean, where you're willing to to put up what needs to be put up with you. All right. Let's pray. Father, we want you. We want you to have your way in us. We want for everything that's fake and plastic, banana, and false to be taken out of our lives. We want all the, the superficiality of uh, in, in relationships, anything that's not of you. We want that to be erased, and we want you to come by your Spirit and have your way. We want you to work deeply in us. We want you to produce real, genuine depth of relationship where there is an atmosphere, connections, where the Holy Spirit can flow and have his way and do whatever he wants to do. And where Jesus is the attraction. He's the one that every eye is on, that every heart is seeking after. Lord, do what only you can do. We thank you for your goodness and thank you for your great heart, Father, for your people. Thank you for the grace that we're so desperate for every day that you give. Lord, we are helpless without you. We recognize that we can do nothing without you. But we just invite you now. We thank you, Lord, that you are the one who brings grace and that you are the one who has given peace. And we pray that you would establish it and root it inside of our lives, in all of our relationships, in our marriages, in our families, in our friendships, with our children, and in our churches. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.